one. Well, thank you for being here today. We are going to be in Romans chapter 7, uh, Romans chapter 7, verses 14 through 25. And as you guys are turning there, I want to tell you that the right tool for the job makes all the difference. About a week ago, Adam and I went out and we put up signs for Trunk or Treat, which by the way, thank you for everyone who came and helped with that. It was a huge success. We put up signs, so we had these big green metal fence posts, and the tool that I grabbed for the job was like a handheld sledgehammer, like a five-pound hammer, okay? Which, in your mind, you think, boom, 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 that should work, but when you start driving a fence post, the post is about six feet off the ground, so this is all the power you have to start driving the fence post, is your wrist. So, Adam and I have to take turns with just burning forearms trying to drive a six-foot fence post. By the time we get it down, it's easy, but initially it's incredibly difficult. And so Adam has this brilliant idea. He says, hey, we're right by Menards. Let's get a fence post driver. And so we get a fence post driver. Fence posts are in, easy peasy, rice and cheesy. No problem. Now, when we think about the people in the Old Testament trying to follow the law, we may have this wrong idea in our mind that these are people that just don't have the right tool for the job. They have a three-pound sledgehammer, and they're trying to nail a fence post, and they can kind of do it, but not really. They just need the right tool for the job, and then they will be fine. But what Paul tells us is that the law is the right tool for job. the job. The problem is that the law was made weak by flesh. It's not that the law wasn't able to be used, or it's not that the law was bad, it's that we as humans were not able to use the law. So if we go back to this fence post illustration, imagine Adam Woodrum comes out once again with a, with a fence post driver, but before we get ready to use it, someone comes, puts our fist into little balls, duct tapes our fists up, then puts big oven mitts on our fists and duct tapes those, and then says, okay, now go use this fence post driver. It's not the fence post driver's fault that it can't be used. It's that we've been made weak in our flesh. We are unable to use this fence post driver. So as we look at the law, Jacob preached last week through the first half of Romans 7, showing that the law is not the problem. The law is good. The law is godly. Rather, it is the sin in us that keeps us from being able to use the law, to follow the law. And Jacob gave an illustration when the Bible says, don't do something, the very first thought is, I bet I could do that. It says, don't stand on the grass. I could stand on the grass. In fact, I remember when I was seven years old, my dad told me never, ever, ever, ever stick anything metal in an outlet. And to this day, I can show you the outlet where there's the black burn mark on it because I took a fork and shoved it in because I wanted to see why my dad said, don't do that. That's the problem, is this law is good, but the sin inside of us corrupts it. And so as we continue looking at Romans chapter 7 this week, looking at verses 14 through 25, Paul is going to show us that the problem, once again, is not the law that God gave us. It is the sin inside of us. And he's going to show us that those under sin have two problems. They always have a desire to be faithful, but are not able to do. They desire, but aren't able to do. So they desire to do God's will, but they're not able to do God's will. And then the second problem they have is that they are prisoners to the evil that is present within them. 
And so before we continue in Romans chapter 7, I want to address a subset of the crowd. I'm going to call you the theological nerds, the ones who, you know, are, are almost striking that unhealthy balance of reading too much. Um, there is a huge academic debate over who the man in Romans 7 is. Some say this is Paul post-conversion. Some say this is Paul pre-conversion. Some say this is the nation of Israel. Some say this is Adam. I want you to know Jacob and I both read all the commentaries. We both come to the conclusion that this is the Apostle Paul pre-conversion. This is him looking at his life before Christ. And so the next 35 minutes of my sermon is not going to be me arguing for that point. It's just going to be me stating this is the point we take. If you want to talk more about it later, we'll get some coffee, but I don't want to bore everyone else. So as far as reasons that you should separate or disfellowship, who the man in Romans 7 is is a pretty low reason on the totem pole to, to leave a church. So like I said, Paul is going to show us today two things. Those under the law, those who are under sin, they always have the desire to do God's will, but are not able to do God's will. They never can bridge the gap from desiring to doing and then second, they are prisoners to the evil that is present within them. So let's look at our first point today, that because we are under sin, we always have desiring without doing. So I'll read verses 14 through 20. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold as a slave to sin, for I do not understand what I am doing because I do not practice what I want to do, but I do what I hate. Now if I do what I do not want to do, I agree with the law that it is good. So now I am no longer the one doing it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my flesh. For the desire to do what is good is with me, but there is no ability to do it. For I do not do the good that I want to do, but I practice the evil I do not want to do. Now, if I do what I do not want, I am no longer the one that does it, but it is the sin living in me. And so, like I said, as we take a look at these first verses, I believe that we are looking at Paul as a Christian with the knowledge he has as a Christian now, looking back at his old life as an Old Testament Jew following the temple, or like following temple Judaism, being under the law. And now as a Christian with a new mindset, he's now analyzing and understanding who he once was at the beginning of his life when he was following the law. And he says very clearly, he assesses the problem very clearly in verse 14. He says, the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh. The reason this never worked from the beginning is these are two separate things. This is a round peg square hole situation. I am of the flesh, but the law is spiritual. But once again, he's not a Christian at this point when he's struggling. He doesn't know that. This is once again now Paul as a Christian looking back at his old life saying, the whole reason none of this worked is because we're dealing with two different things. I am flesh and the law is spiritual. And so as we look at these verses, these may look like a lot of verses to cover, but Paul says the same three things two times. He's very repetitive in what he says. Look at verse 14. It says, I am of the flesh, sold as a slave to sin. Now look at verse 18. For I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my flesh. So we have flesh and flesh. Look at verses 15. For I do not understand what I am doing, because I do not practice what I want to do, but I do what I hate. Then look at verses 18b and 19. 
For the desire to do what is good is within me, but there is no ability to do it. For I do not do the good that I want to do, but I practice the evil that I do not want to do. Then look at verses 17 and 20. So now I am no longer the one doing it, but the sin living in me. Verse 20. Now if I do what I do not want, I am no longer the one who does it, but it is the sin living in me. So Paul is essentially making these claims, and then he's restating these claims again. So we really only have to work through a few things, so don't be intimidated by that big block of text. Essentially, Paul breaks up what he's saying into four main points. The first point he makes is that the law is good. Once again, the problem is not the law. The law is good. The second thing he then says is that his desires are good. Not only is the law good, but his desires are good. He has a desire to follow the law. But then we get to the crux of it, the third point, but I don't do good. I have desire, but I don't. When the push comes to shove, I don't actually do the good I'm supposed to. And then his conclusion, his fourth point, is that I cannot do the good I'm supposed to do because the law is spiritual and I am of the flesh. And so what Paul has realized, that there is this monumental gap between desire and do. If you think of, if you imagine if the stage was cut in half and spread apart 50 feet, on this side of the stage would be the desire to follow after God, the desire to be obedient to the law of God, like any good Jew would have had back in the Old Testament. They love the law, they want to be obedient to it. And then all the way across this chasm is then the actual doing, the actual being obedient to it, the actual following after it. And so Paul says, no matter how hard I try, no matter how how hard I try, I can never bridge the gap from desiring to doing. I mean, it's not that Paul just needs to try harder. It's that he physically can't. Look at verse 15. For I do not understand what I am doing, because I do not, what practi- or I do not practice what I want to do, but I do what I hate. He says, I don't understand what's going on. I want to do these things, but I end up never doing them. Or verse 18. For I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my flesh. For the desire to do what is good is within me, but there is no ability to do it. That's key. This is not someone who is struggling or stumbling. This is someone who says, there is literally no ability for me to do this good because sin is always corrupting every single thing I do. And so Paul is continuing his self-diagnosis as he works through and says, what is the problem? Why can I not make this jump from desire to do? And this is what he says. If you look at the beginning of verse 14, he says, I am of the flesh. And then he says, I am sold as a slave to sin. The reason Paul can never fulfill the desires that he has is because his master sin will not let him accomplish that. So if you imagine Paul trying to make this jump across this chasm, he's trying to do it with a rope tied around his ankle, and that rope is held by his master sin. No matter how hard he tries to jump, sin is always pulling him back. But it's not just that sin externally is holding him back. Sin internally is also holding him back. Who he is, is a sinner. Look at verses 17 and 20. So now I am no longer the one doing it, but it is sin living in me. That's verse 17. Now look at verse 20. Now if I do what I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but it is the sin that lives within me. 
Now, we should stop for a second and say, Paul is not saying the devil made me do it, or Paul is not saying it's not my fault, it's the sin living in me. What Paul is saying is his very core of who he is, deep within him, is sin. Deep within him is the sin nature. To quote R.C. Sproul, we are not sinners because we sin, we sin because we are sinners. And so not only externally does Paul have a rope tied around his leg, keeping him from being able to make this jump, but internally his legs are broken. They don't work anyway. So it's not that if he just tries harder, he'll be able to make the jump from desire to doing. It's not that if he just runs stronger, runs faster. It's that he physically cannot make this jump from desire to do because sin is his master. And so as I read these commentaries that help me through Romans chapter 7, one of the commentaries gives a great application for us today. It says the same way Paul was an Old Testament believer, he was around the presence of God, he followed after God, he loved the law of God, but he never internally had God with him. He says that there are what we would call many Old Testament Christians living in our churches. These are Christians who aren't actually Christians, but they say they're Christians. They talk like Christians. They say things Christians say. They are around the presence of God the same way the Old Testament Jews would have been near the presence of the temple. They would have been near the presence of God there. We have many, many people in our churches in America that claim the name of Christ but have not internalized the name of Christ. They are Old Testament Christians. They have desire, but they never are able to do. And in case you think that I'm just pulling this out of left field here, Hebrews 6, or Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 and 5 says, It is impossible to renew to repentance those who were once enlightened, who tasted the heavenly gift, who shared in the Holy Spirit, and who tasted God's good word and the power of the coming age. Now, we know the Bible says it is impossible to lose your salvation. We know that Jesus holds us in the palm of his hand and no one will take us from him. We know that nothing will separate us from the love of God. We know these are just basic truths that are taught. And yet we see in the Bible that there are people who have been enlightened. They have tasted the heavenly gift. They have shared in the Holy Spirit. They have tasted the good word and the power of the coming age. And they are not Christians. And this is the exact same scenario Paul found himself in as a Old Testament believer. He was near the presence of God. He was around the people of God. He had the word of God. He was by the spirit of God, but he himself had not internalized and received the Holy Spirit. That is the key we need to understand. And so because of that, because of that, Paul had desire. He had good desire. There, I don't know if there's anyone in this room right now who, if I were to ask, do you want to be obedient and do what God wants you to do, who would say, no, I don't want to do that. If you're here, why don't you sleep in? I don't understand that at all. Um, I think everyone wants to say they want to do what God wants them to do. But it is not enough to just have desire. That's what Paul says. And so the first question we need to ask today is how do we know we're Christians? Like if desiring to do God's will is not enough to know we're Christians, then we need to be able to answer that question because Paul, Paul had major desire in Romans 7 to do what God wanted. But that doesn't mean that he was where God wanted him to be. So let's ask the question then, 
How do we know we're saved if desiring is not enough? If desiring to do God's will is not enough, then how do we know we are Christians? Having desire is the same as being a hearer of the law, but not a doer, per James 1, 22. And so the sticky point we find ourselves in is that people who think they're Christians but are not have desire to follow after God, but no ability to actually do to follow after God. In the same vein, we have Christians in this room who are legitimate Christians. They have desire to follow after God, but then they fail in following after God, so they don't do either. And both these things look very similar to the outside world. How can we tell the difference between someone who thinks they're a Christian, has desire, but does not do, versus someone who actually is a Christian, has desire, but then fails and does not do. The answer is found in Galatians 5, 16 through 18. This was also written by the Apostle Paul, and there's one key phrase that tells us everything we need to know. Galatians 5, 16 through 18. I say then, walk by the Spirit, and you will certainly not carry out the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is against the Spirit, and the Spirit desires what is against the flesh. These are opposed to each other, so that you don't do what you want. And so listen to that phrase, you don't do what you want. Paul's saying, as a Christian, there are going to be times where you're going to say, I don't understand why I am doing what I don't want to do. I don't want to sin, and yet I keep sinning. Why is this happening to me, okay? That is something all of us as Christians have thought. But listen to what Paul says in verse 18 of Galatians 5. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. What is the difference between the man in Romans chapter 7 and the man in Galatians 5? The man in Romans chapter 7 is led by sin. The man in Galatians chapter 5 is led by the Spirit. And so my first point of application I want you to understand is this. You will know who your master is based on where you find yourself. You will know who is leading you based on where you end up. If you find yourself continually going back to sin, then sin is your master. If you find yourself continually overcoming sin and growing closer to God and growing more holy, then the Spirit is your master. Let me, let me give you an illustration. Before uh, Cynthia and I got married, I had this dog named Barry who was just dumb as a bag of hammers. He was a great dog. I loved him, and he was an idiot. Um, just this big, fat, black lab. So we got married. I had Barry. Cynthia inherited Barry. And when we were driving one day, Barry was sitting in the front seat. Cynthia wasn't in the car. I didn't make her sit in the back seat and why my dog sat in the front. And my window was down like maybe this much. I mean, enough to where he could stick his head out. We were driving down the road going maybe... 15 or 20 miles an hour, and he saw something. I have never seen that fat, stupid dog wiggle his butt out the window as fast as I've seen any animal do that. I mean, he just flew out the window, and then you just heard this big boom splat where his face hit the ground, and then he just took off, okay? He just went running and chased whatever he was chasing. And about two hours later, I found him, face all bloodied up from hitting the concrete. He was fine. He was just an idiot. And, and then just stinking to high heaven because he had found some dead raccoon that he was rolling in. Like, and he was so proud of himself. He thought he was just the bee's knees as far as dogs went. Now, this same dog, if I were to put him on a leash, he would continually move around like this. He would go all over, but we'd be moving forward, okay? He'd be moving all around, but be moving forward. 
One example, Barry was led by his own desires. He, through his own desires, found himself rolling in roadkill with a bloody face, okay? When he's led by me, yeah, he's moving around. He's not being super obedient, but he's ending up forward. He's ending up where he needs to be. He's going in the right direction. And so the difference is who you are led by. So Christian, I want to ask you, do you find yourself... Yes, you move around, you struggle, but you're moving in the right direction? Or are you sitting here saying, I, I always end up back where I don't want to be. I keep trying to get away from it, and yet I am always back at sin. I am always back at alcohol. I'm always back at pornography. I'm always back at greed. I never have victory over that. And you may say, just because you want to do good, that's not enough to, to hook yourself, your anchor, into saying that you are a believer. And so you may give a rebuttal that Paul gives, and you may say, well, hey, it's okay. I know I'm a Christian because I always feel bad after I sin. I know I'm a believer because I feel bad after I sin. So that has to mean something, right? Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7.10, Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, but worldly grief produces death. Feeling bad for feeling bad's sake is not a virtue. Having desire is not a virtue. Feeling bad about sin is not a virtue. What matters is not are you desiring, but are you doing. What matters is not when I fail, do I feel bad about it? But when I fail, is there repentance that leads to then growth? Is this a worldly sorrow or a godly sorrow? And so the first point we see today as we look at this inability from Paul to go from desiring to doing is because he was under sin. Christians, we need to understand that we are not under sin. We are under the Spirit. We may still struggle to make that bridge from desiring to doing, but we will end up having victory if we are believers. We will feel sad about being caught. We will feel sad about our sin, but that sadness leads to then repentance and growth. And so that's the first point we've seen today. Let's take a look at our second point now. That Paul is a prisoner to the presence of evil that is with him. Paul is not a warrior or a fighter fighting the evil within him. Paul is at best a captive prisoner. So let's look at verses 21 through 25. So I discover this law. When I want to do what is good, evil is present within me. For in my inner self I delight in God's law, but I see a different law in the parts of my body waging war against the law of my mind and taking me prisoner to the law of sin in the parts of my body. What a wretched man am I! Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with my mind, I, are, I myself am serving the law of God, but with my flesh, the law of sin." And so Paul, as he grows up as a Jewish man, he learns about the law of God, but he also discovers a second law, a second law that says, when I want to do what is good, evil is present within me. Let's not gloss over the fact that the very beginning of verse 21, Paul says there's a second law. That is the most powerful statement Paul can make as far as something that's certain, something that's known for a fact. It is a guarantee It is without failure or error that Paul says there is a second law within me that also says evil is present. Like, if I came to the scientific community and I said, I have a hypothesis, 
that every time I drop my phone, it will fall in my hand. This hypothesis is called gravity. The scientific community would say, well, this is verifiable and repeatable. We accept your hypothesis that your phone will drop when you let it go from your hand. And so then the hypothesis would spread around the scientific community and other people from Australia and Antarctica and China and New Zealand would start dropping phones in their hands saying, we have verified and repeated this hypothesis. We are going to upgrade this hypothesis to a theory. We will call this the theory of gravity. And for many more years, people will continue to test this theory. And if this theory proves true for all people in all times and all situations ever, a theory then gets upgraded to a law. And that's why it's called the law of gravity. A law is a guarantee for all people, all times, all places, forever. There will never be a time where Donita will be standing there on a Tuesday at Green Hills, and then she lets go, and her phone... I was going to do a magic trick, but my finger wasn't strong enough. Her phone doesn't drop. Pride comes before a fall, right? (laughs) And her phone doesn't fall. The same way Paul says with such confidence in verse 21, I discovered this law. It is a guarantee for all people, all times, all places. When I want to do what is good, there is also evil that is present within me. For my inner self delights in God's law, but I see a different law in the parts of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and taking me prisoner to the law of sin in the parts of my body. Now when we read this as believers, we're very familiar as Christians with war language in the Bible. The uh, Christian battle or the Christian life is a life of war. It's a life of fighting. It's a life of persevering. Ephesians chapter 6, we put on the full armor of God. We wage war. James 4, 7, resist the devil and he will flee from you. We understand this war language, but as a Christian, the wars that we fight are wars that we can win. They're battles we can win because Christ has fought them for us. Don't, don't gloss over this fact here. Paul is fighting a war as well when he fights this war against the law that's in his body. His flesh is fighting a war. But look at the difference between the war he fights and the war we fight. Verse 23 But I see a different law in the parts of my body waging war against the law of my mind and taking me prisoner to the law of sin in the parts of my body. Paul is not fighting a war he can win. He is fighting a war where he is a prisoner. Paul is not fighting Pilgrim's Progress where he's wearing the armor of God and he's going to be victorious over the devil. Paul is asleep in his bed when a flashbang comes in his room, goes off, and then SEAL Team 6 hogties him before he even has a chance to wake up and understand what is happening in his middle of his night's sleep, okay? Paul is taken as a prisoner of sin. Now listen to the despair that he has. Once again, as a Christian, we don't have despair in the wars we fight because we know the battle's already won. That's like 30% of the music you hear on Caleb is that the battle's already won. But listen to what Paul says. What a wretched man am I who will rescue me from this body of death? Paul is a prisoner, and you can use this illustration. You can think Paul's been captured by sin, and Paul's been thrown into a pit of his prison, and the prisoner will say, hey, if you can climb out, you're free to go. But before we throw you in, we're going to take this 300-pound corpse, chain it to your leg, and then we're going to throw you in. And every time Paul tries to climb out, the weight of this corpse is dragging him down. This would be the only time it'd be appropriate for the skeleton to fall in the sermon. And so Paul says, 
Who will deliver me from this body of death? This corpse that is clung to me, who is going to deliver me from it? Now, Paul in his great excitement, knowing what he's getting ready to write in Romans chapter 8, bursts out in praise. He can't contain it. He says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. But he doesn't, he doesn't jump into Romans 8 yet because he's not done summarizing his point. He is excited. He does know Romans 8 is coming. Romans 8 is right around the corner, guys. But Paul, right now, is still a prisoner. He's still chained to this body of death. And so he summarizes the problem in verse 25. So then with my mind, I myself am serving the law of God, but with my flesh, the law of sin. And this is where Paul concludes his point as he, as he assesses his problem. Now, as we look at this, Anyone who is not within Christ is in a prison. They are chained to a body of death. There are some who don't know they're in prison. There are some who don't care they're in prison. But there are people who are in this prison who are trying to escape. There are two types of people in this prison of sin that are trying to escape, but only one type will be rescued. There is one type of people in this prison who thinks, if I climb harder, I will get out of this pit and there's another type of person in this prison that says, I realize I can't save myself, and I'm going to cry out for a Savior to deliver me from this pit. If you are in the first camp, like Paul was, thinking, if I just climb harder, if I do more, if I live better, if I do better, I will be able to deliver myself from this sin, I want to read to you the Apostle Paul's resume before he was a Christian. Philippians 3, 4 through 6. If anyone thinks he has grounds for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, regarding the law, a Pharisee, regarding zeal, persecutor of the church, regarding righteousness that is, righteousness that is in the law, blameless. The Apostle Paul was the Pharisee of Pharisees. If there is anyone who was going to have a chance to climb out of that pit and rescue themselves, it was going to be the Apostle Paul. And he, you know what he says later in Philippians? He says, all these achievements, everything I had, I compare them as what the petting zoo left behind yesterday after trunk or treat, what the animals at the petting zoo left behind. I consider them as manure compared to the righteousness that Christ gives me. And so if you are in the first camp and you think if you climb harder, you will be able to get out. If you are just strong enough, you'll be able to free yourself from this bloated body of uh, flesh and sin. I want you to know you will never be better than the Apostle Paul was. You will never be more righteous than he was before he came to Christ, no matter how hard you try. He was the best of the best, and he still couldn't hack it. So the second type of person who's in a prison right now who will be freed, who is that person? That is a person who cries out for help, who realizes they cannot save themselves. When we look at the Beatitudes, when we look at the first sermon Jesus preached, when we look at the first Beatitudes that Jesus preached, he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, so they will be filled. I want you to know God is rich in mercy. 
God knows you are in prison and God offers salvation for you. God's salvation will never mean anything if you think you don't need it because you can climb out. But if you are poor in spirit and you cry out, what a wretched man am I? If you weep over your sin and say, why do I do these things I hate? If you are humble and say, who will rescue me from this body of death? And if you hunger and thirst for righteousness saying, I don't know why I don't do the good I want to do. I want to do this good then you are exactly where you need to be to be rescued from this body of death and from this pit of sin that you are a prisoner to. The only way to be rescued is to cry out to Jesus. I want you to know today, there are people in this church who think they are Christians because they have desire and they feel bad, but they are never doing and they are never growing. And they need to understand that you will never be able to save yourself until you humble yourself, realize you are broken, realize you are poor in spirit, and cry out to God. We went through this pumpkin gospel yesterday at, uh, at Trunk or Treat, where we started with this pumpkin that was full of just nastiness and mold and just rotten juice and stuff. I mean, we explained to the kids that that's how we are before God. Every single one of us, our best efforts is a rotten, nasty pumpkin. And we explained to the kids how because of what Jesus did, Jesus lived a perfect life. He died the death we didn't deserve. And if we repent, turn from our sin, and put our trust in him, he will clean us out, he will make us new, and he will put his light within us, and we will shine for him all the rest of our days. Church, I want you to know that you will never be able to free yourself on your own strength. You will never be able to cross that gap from doing or from desiring to doing without Christ. And so as we look at this sermon today, as we conclude this sermon today, Paul shows us that those who are under sin have desire but never do, and that they were prisoners to the evil that was present in them. We've seen that we need to evaluate ourselves. We need to look at our hearts and we need to ask ourselves, do I think I'm a Christian just because I feel bad about my sin and just because I want to do right? Or do I, am I a Christian because I see that I am led by the Spirit, that I am moving in the right direction, that I'm growing in grace, I'm growing in sanctification? And then the second thing I want you to remember, uh, church, is that it is through humility, brokenness, and the cry of salvation that Jesus will find us. Jesus will not find us in our pride. He will not find us thinking that we can do it on our own. Jesus is there for the brokenhearted. Jesus is there for the poor in spirit. Jesus is there for those who say, what a wretched man am I? Who will save me from this body of death? Today, if you are not a believer, if you realize you are that man like the Apostle Paul who thinks if he just keeps doing good, he will be saved, we're going to have a song. Stacy's going to come up and play for a few minutes. And during this time, I would ask you, find myself, find Jacob, find a believer who's next to you and receive salvation. Go from death to life. Be transformed from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. Lose your old master sin and gain a new master named God. And then finally, Christian in the room, don't stop fighting the good fight. Jesus didn't rescue you from the pit just so that way we could crawl back to the pit and take a nap in it. He rescued us from the pit so that way we could go and we could preach the gospel. Like Paul, cry out in thanksgiving and appreciate what God has done for you. Let me pray and then we'll have a time of reflection.